good to be back, and uh, if you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Mike, and uh, Hurchin family and I were out on vacation the last couple weeks, and I appreciate your prayers for us. Is had safe travels and a good trip and enjoyable time and only a few awkward moments, but that wasn't with family, so that's always nice that it's outside the family, you have those awkward moments and not within the family, but it is good to be back. And I want to thank Jason and uh, Mike uh, for filling in at the pulpit and bringing up the Word of God and, and preaching it the last couple Sundays. And if you missed those, uh, I know we've had quite a few light attendances, and I was reminded this morning, thank you, Stephanie, it is dead week, so people may be out and about doing things. But anyway, if you missed those or you ever happen to miss on a Sunday, I just want to remind you of the church's podcast that you can find through uh, iTunes. You can also find a link through it through the church's website that you don't have to have iTunes account. You can just go and listen to it there if you'd like to hear what Mike preached on on forgiveness and uh, Jason's preaching on in our imitation or was it imitation the word? I don't think that was the right word. Impersonation? Both of Christ. and. <laughs> Be like Jesus is basically the, 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 the cliff notes. But anyway, uh, they did a great job. And This morning we're going to be returning back to our series, uh, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And if you haven't been here in a while or just need a recap on what we're doing with this series, basically we're taking all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're piecing them together as chronologically as possible as we can. Um, when you read through the Gospels, you, you can keep in mind that they weren't written with the intention of being historical books. And so there are, are events that you'll find in other Gospels that happened before or after events like in Matthew or in John or Luke or Mark. And, uh, and so that can kind of be confusing, like, well, why didn't they get it right? Um, that wasn't the point. The point of the Gospels was to record the story of Jesus. It was to pass on the story, the ministry, the miracles, the healings, the teachings of Jesus Christ, ultimately the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ to future generations so that wouldn't be lost. And as the disciples and apostles began seeing each other martyred for the faith, they began understanding we got to write this down. The Holy Spirit impressed upon their hearts to write this down. And so hence we have the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John of the Gospels. And so as we're walking through this, you may notice if you're keeping tabs, uh, about three weeks ago, we were in Matthew 10. Well, this morning, we're going to shift focus to Matthew 5 through 7. The reason we're doing it is because the Gospels are not written chronologically. And when you come to what we look at this morning, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like to encourage you, if you've not read the Sermon on the Mount recently, or maybe you're doing a Bible study and you're trying to figure out, what should I do next in my Bible study? I'd like to encourage you to go through the Sermon on the Mount. At least read it this week. It's three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe make it part of your Bible study time because no matter where you are in your, where you are in your relationship with God, you're going to find things that you can learn uh, to deepen your relationship with God. There's going to be things as we walk through this in the next several months. And just a heads up, we're going to be in Matthew 5 through 7 into 2022. Um, and so as we walk through this, there are going to be times we're going to be convicted about our shortcomings. Uh, about our failures, about our unworthiness to even belong to God because of what Jesus teaches in these uh, three chapters. This morning, we're only going to focus on verse 1 and 2, is we're going to set up the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to do is we set up the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking and focusing on Jesus's actions. And I began thinking about Jesus's action, one thing that came to mind, and I'm not a huge physics or math guy. I did enjoy math until, you know, numbers were no longer part of math. Um, but it came to mind Newton's third law of motion. And you've probably heard this. You may even be familiar with this. Newton's third law of motion says, for every action, there is an opposite and equal 
reaction. Okay, so we all know that. So the idea is there is an object A and there's an object B. And when object A and object B collide, there's a force of motion which happens. We see this when we go and we watch baseball games and we see the pitcher pitch and the batter swing the bat and it hits the ball a certain distance. That's the, the two forces coming in motion, colliding and creating an equal reaction. We see this when we sit in chairs. Okay, so when you sit in a chair, whether it's here at church or whether it's at home, how many of y'all, it's probably more guys than gals, but how many guys does your chair have that squeaky noise when you sit down into it? Okay, it, it has gotten to the point where, you know, it is accepting your motion and it is reacting to your motion. Okay, and so we have the floor, we have the chair that accepts our reaction and our motion. Sometimes it accepts it with a noise. Sometimes we've all experienced it. The chair doesn't accept it at all and just completely gives out, right? So this is Newton's third law of motion. Now, the only flaw that I could see within Newton's third law of motion is when it comes to the Christian life. Because when we look at the actions of Jesus in the Gospels, when we look into the New Testament, the actions of Jesus are meant to create an equal reaction in the life of the believer. And so in setting up the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to be looking at are the six actions of Jesus, five which are easy to see, one which is implied, and how each of those actions is meant to have a reaction in our own life. Now, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, again, it's, it, Jesus didn't like start the sermon like, hey, this is the Sermon on the Mount. It's just classified as that. Matter of fact, Luke refers to it as a sermon on the plain, and we'll talk about that later as we go through the series. But when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, a danger we all can have is we can read through the sermon and we can use it as a measuring stick for our own salvation or even our own righteousness. Matter of fact, if you just look through the Beatitudes, which begin in verse 3 and run through verse uh, 9, you're going to see that in, in every beatitude, in some way, we all fall short. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks, beginning next week, just walking through each beatitude individually. But this is why when we read the gospel, this is why when we hear the teachings of Christ and the actions of Christ, we have to keep in mind what the gospel of John said about Jesus, that he is full of grace and truth. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount and we see that we fall short, we need to be reminded that we have been given God's grace by our faith in Christ alone, who is the epitome of truth. Now, John Piper wrote concerning this sermon that the Sermon on the Mount is our doctor's medical advice, not our employer's job description. And as I mentioned, we're going to feel unworthy at times. My prayer is we walk through this passage that we're going to be transformed more into the likeness of Christ. We will, un, we will realize our unworthiness before a holy God, but at the same time, we'll come to the understanding of how great God's grace and his love and his mercy are towards us. Now, we'll dive into Beatitudes next week. This morning, let's just spend in verse 1 and 2 as we set up the sermon and see Jesus' actions. And the word of the Lord says, Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Again, in these two 
verses. I, I think when we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, we're beginning, we want to get to the Beatitudes. We want to get to the blessed are they, right? We want to get to the times where you are the salt and light of the earth, the times where Jesus defines what a, adultery is and what oaths are and what lines are and, and, and the, 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 you know, love one another and be good to one another. We want to get to that stuff. And so we, we can skip over what the word of the Lord is actually saying in these two verses. And we have to believe as believers all Scripture is breathed out by God. And so all Scripture has a point. All Scripture has something for us to take from. And in these six actions of Jesus, five which are stated, one which is implied, we see something that is not trivial or insignificant, but actually holds a lot of significance to us in how we respond or react to who Jesus Christ is. The very first thing we're told in verse 1 of chapter 5 is seeing the crowds. Jesus saw the crowds. What is the reaction we have in Jesus seeing the crowds? Is that we are seen by God. Now this statement, seeing the crowds, is a simple reminder to us that Jesus Christ has begun his earthly ministry. It's very early in the stages, and yet at this point in time, he's having a large amount of people beginning to follow him. There's a large amount of people wanting to know who he is. We know from Scripture, just in our time in the Gospels themselves, that all sorts of people were being drawn to Jesus Christ for all sorts of reasons. Some were coming to Jesus because they wanted healings. Some were coming to Jesus because they wanted someone they loved or knew to be healed. Some were coming for miracles. Some were coming to Jesus because they, they were asking him questions. They wanted to understand, and yet some were coming to Jesus because they wanted to question Jesus and who he was and why he was doing what he was doing. Some were coming to believe and place their faith in Jesus Christ, and some were just curious. Who is this guy that is teaching? Who is this guy doing miracles? The point is the love of God draws all types of people to himself, and none of them are perfect. The people in this crowd, there would have been authentic believers and authentic Jews, and there would have been hypocrites. There would have been people who came to Jesus who were humble, and they wanted to learn. And then there were people who came to Jesus who were prideful and felt they had it all figured out. There were the outcasts within this crowd. There were the popular, the sinner, the self-righteous. There were the passionate, and there were the angry. The point is, we all come with our mess before Jesus, and he sees us all in our mess. Jesus saw the crowd. Even though we're told the disciples came to him, these chapters were all about people coming to Jesus no matter their intention. Whatever the intention of the people to, to come to Jesus so he could see them, he knew what they needed. Jesus was the omniscient God. Omniscient means the all-knowing. And he saw them for who they were, what they needed, and he loved them by presenting them with truth. So there may be times in our life, either as adults, we can feel that we're overlooked in the crowd. We're just a face among the masses. I think Facebook has done an incredible job to make us feel this way. As I look at adults and students, and, and, and if you, who, who here beside Richard doesn't have a Facebook account? <laughs> all right, so some of you all don't, so that's good. But one thing I've noticed about Facebook accounts is, is we'll have an account, so we'll post something, right? You know, we were on vacation, and I sent pictures to Jamie, and I let her do all the posting. And I'm not saying she did this, but I see other people that we, we post things. We make comments about things. We put pictures up about what we're doing or where we are or what we're eating or whatever we're enjoying in that moment. Now, after we post something, 
What do most of us do within five to 20 minutes or an hour? We take up our phone, turn it on, we hit Facebook, and we see if there's been any comments. Has there been any likes? Did someone give us a heart? Oh, that's nice. Did someone say, oh, that's beautiful, or how, how sweet we looked in that picture? Went those little emojis to pop up. And we do this throughout the day, and, and students and adults do this. We, we go, we want to see people noticing us, people seeing us. Because there's something in us that wants to be seen. It wants to be noticed. Yet if no one sees us in a crowd, and if we feel like a face crowd, or if we feel like Waldo. Remember Waldo? Where's Waldo? If you ever feel like Waldo where you've got to be found? The word of the Lord says, God who created all things created us in his image and likeness, and he sees us. And he doesn't need us to post about our lives for us to see us. We are not a face in the crowd or one who blends into the masses. The word of the Lord says we are fearfully and wonderfully made by the God who lavishes his love and his grace and his attention upon us. We need to remember this as the world tries to define who we should be or what we should be doing or what we should have done or how we should respond even to certain things that are going on. God sees you. You're not invisible to him. He is fully aware of you and all that you are, all of your faults, all your flaws, and all of your glories. He sees the entire package, and he loves you. Second action we're told is that he went up on the mountain. Now, this mountain isn't speaking of a literal mountain like we might think of. It's really speaking of a high place. It's commonly believed to be a hill or a high place in northern, Gal- northern Israel that overlooked the Sea of Galilee. The exact location isn't known today. There's some guesses about where this would have taken place. But what we do know is that Jesus went up. That is his action. What is our reaction? Is that we can know God. Throughout Scripture, when an individual went up onto a high place or onto a mountain, extraordinary things would happen because God would reveal himself in that manner. When you go to the book of Genesis, Abraham viewed the mountains of the Jordan or the valley of the Jordan Valley from a high place when he and Lot were to separate. And God told Abraham, your descendants are going to dwell in this land. All that you see will belong to them. Whether it's on the same high place or a different place, when Abraham once again looked into the Jordan Valley, God came and revealed himself on that high place and told him about the wickedness in the land and how he was going to destroy it. Jerusalem is commonly referred to as Mount Zion on Scripture because it was on an elevated hill. And it was a place where people would go and meet with God and they could come to know God more. The significant mountain in Scripture that we can read in the Old Testament is when Moses ascended onto Mount Sinai. In the book of Exodus, Moses ascended Mount Sinai at God's command and at the people of Israel's request that he go up and speak to God and receive the law from them. And as Moses was given the law by God to deliver to the people of God to live by, here we find in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus now interprets the law 
so we, God's people, can fully understand what God is calling us to and what he has revealed about his holy nature. And though Jesus' ministry is just now beginning here in Matthew 5, it foreshadows that Jesus once again would ascend a mountain at the end of his earthly ministry known as Mount Golgotha where he would be crucified. Here in the Gospel of Matthew, we almost have the bookends of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 5, he ascends to interpret the law so that people can understand. In Matthew 27, he ascends once again to fulfill the law of God so that we all might be saved by grace. And it's significant because here in Matthew 5, if we read 5 through 7 as mandates that you have to do this or you're not a believer. You have to live like this or you're not a Christian. And we fail at any point. If that's what Matthew 5 through 7 was teaching us, then we all would be lost in our sin and destined for hell. And Jesus would not have had to ascend in Matthew chapter 27 to pay the debt of our sin by his, his life on the cross. Jesus ascends here in Matthew 5 to teach us, and later in Matthew 27, he's going to send again, willing to die for us, because he knows when we read this and study us, we can't do this. Even our best day, we can't be what Jesus is teaching us. And so Jesus died for 100% of us because he lived 100% of us. In both places, Jesus went up to reveal to us that he was God and to reveal to us that God loves us. We're also told that he sat down. Again, that doesn't seem like a very monumental thing that happened. But we have to keep in mind, to ascend to an elevated point in this day and age, in Jesus' time, was to go so people could hear them. It was to get to a place where they could speak down into the valley, down into the hill, so everyone in attendance could hear what was going to be taught or what was going to be said. Jesus didn't have microphone woes like we have at times, okay? He didn't have to figure out which one was going to work. He simply got up to the highest point, and he sat down. And when he sat down, he sat down in authority. See, to sit down in this sort of atmosphere was to be the place of authority as the teacher so no matter who was in attendance on this day, no matter what they were seeking from Jesus or why they came to this particular location, the, the, the message was clear. Jesus was the one in authority. He was the teacher in this gathering. Significant because to not just hear but apply Jesus' teaching, we must believe, receive, and trust him as the ultimate authority in our life. He is our shepherd. That means Jesus is the one who leads and guides us. He is our Savior, which means that we can't save ourselves. He is the one whom the presence of the Almighty God resides, which means, guess what? We're not in charge. We're not in control. We don't have it all figured out because Jesus is the epitome of wisdom to which we need. He is the full embodiment of love to which we all desire and want. The thing is, if we don't believe in Jesus as the authority, then what Jesus teaches in these three chapters and any other time in all the Word of God since He is the living Word if he's not the authority, then what he says and what God's word says will have little value, little significance, and little impact on our life. 
And Jesus makes this clear as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. He wraps it up by saying this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. James, we read, who be doers of the word and not deceivers only deceiving yourselves, or not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Jesus sat down to reveal his authority. And Jesus preached God's word because it was the only authority. And as God's people, we are to live under God's authority found in his word. And the fourth action is implied. It says his disciples came to him at verse 1. Here's the thing. The only reason the disciples and the crowds could come close to Jesus is because Jesus invited them near. The reaction from us is we can be near and hear God. There's two things I learned from just this simple little thing. Is he, his disciples came to him. The first thing that came to my mind and God said is the closer I get to Jesus, the closer we get to Jesus, the better we're going to hear him. And that should make sense. You ever been in a crowd where one individual is trying to give instruction and they don't have a microphone or a bullhorn and there's a massive crowd of people and you're left asking the person next to you, what did they say? Ever been there? But if we were up front, the message is clear. The disciples were close to Jesus. They had the best opportunity to hear what he was getting ready to say. See, our proximity to Christ and God delivers us the best opportunity to hear what God is saying. The closer we get, the clearer his voice becomes, and the greater we understand what his word is instructing us. And so to be close to Jesus and to be close to God is to be in God's word. Throughout Scripture, we're told these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says that we are to have the mind of Christ. 1 John chapter 2 says we are to walk in the same way in which he walked, being Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5 says we are to be imitators of God. And since Jesus Christ was God, equal to God, that means we are to be imitators of Christ. Galatians chapter 5 says we are to keep step with the Spirit. The Spirit is also Christ. That's what we know as the Trinity. But as God's people, we cannot do this unless we are submitting and submersing ourselves into God's word. The other implication can be seen from the understanding when the law was given. For that, you have to go back to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, what happened is God's people had been redeemed and rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were being led by Moses across the Red Sea, and they come to Mount Sinai where they're instructed to set up camp. And so in Exodus 19, God comes to the mountain and he tells Moses, you need to set up limits around the mountain where the people cannot come across because his presence was going to consume it. And so it was only going to be Moses that was going to be permitted to ascend up the mountain into the presence of God. But this scene became so frightening and so overwhelming for God's people that after God delivered what we know as the Ten Commandments, the people said, or the word of the Lord says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So this would become the beginning of what we know as the priesthood. 
as the priest would sit in a place to intercede for the people of God. Now, the priests were set up as a, not as a barrier, but as a buffer. And through the sacrificial system, which you read on in Exodus and into Leviticus, and when the tabernacle was given, what the priests would do is they would offer these sacrifices to remind people there is, in fact, a barrier between us and God's holiness. And when the temple was built, they would have the Holy of Holies, to which only one priest could enter that was drawn by Lot. Now, this was the practice of the Jewish people. This is Jesus' audience here in Matthew chapter 5. They understood this. They understood there was a distance between them and God because of his holiness and their sinfulness. But when Jesus comes, he comes to break down the barriers. And Jesus allowing his disciples and these crowds of people to come to him, where he was once again the full embodiment of God on the mountainside, he revealed a new way to which all people might con- commune and have a relationship with God. This would come to completion at his crucifixion. When he breathed out his last, the veil or curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn in two, meaning the way had been made for people to come to God through forgiveness found in Christ alone. Jesus' action of inviting us near is a treasure we cannot overlook. It is by faith in Christ alone that we now have full access, full access to God. Think about that. The God who created the heavens and the earth, who knows every human being on this planet, who holds all things together by his power and his might and his wisdom, who all people will bow before and be judged by him, we, as his children, now have full access to him. There is no barrier. There is no buffer. You don't have to text Pastor Mike or email Pastor Mike or I am Pastor Mike and say, hey, I need to confess my sin to you because guess what? You can go straight to God now because of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews points this incredible work of Christ out in its implication. He says, let us then, because of who Christ is and what he did, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. God came near to sinful man to draw sinful man to himself. And that is amazing. Holy God, who is worshipped in his holiness in this very moment by heavenly beings, came near to draw us into his holiness. And the Bible and the gospel is that all are invited in and invited close, and all are invited into this intimate relationship with him. You know, we are born with no rights. I I, I look out, I watch the news, even though I know I shouldn't do anymore, and everyone thinks about all these rights they have. You have no rights before a holy God when you're born. You have no rights. You are in sin, and he is holy. But when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, God gives you full right to come before him, full access to bow before him and worship him, full privilege to open yourself to dive into his love, his mercy, and his grace. And as Jesus invited his disciples close to him, 
So God invites us, his children, closer to him every single day. The disciples came near as the crowd took their place, and Jesus sat down. Verse 2 says he opened his mouth. That seems insignificant again. I mean, if you're going to teach, if you're going to say anything, that kind of happens. I mean, if we all just sat here and with our mouths open and nothing coming out. It's kind of awkward, right? It feels weird. And so I I read that, okay, he opened his mouth. Big deal. But when I read of God opening his mouth in Scripture, I see that things happen. Incredible, miraculous things happen. See, our God draws us near and allows us access to him so that we might hear his voice. We serve and love a God and are loved by a God who wants to speak with us and desires for us to hear his voice. But the thing is, if that's his action, then our reaction is we must be ready to listen. Notice Jesus didn't open his mouth until everyone had gotten ready. Everyone had gotten their, 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 their spot. And I think many people struggle to hear God's voice. At times, even those who are closest to God are going to go through those spiritual valleys where they struggle to see and hear God's voice. But I also know sometimes our lack of hearing the voice of God isn't because God isn't speaking. Rather, it's because we have drowned out his voice with too much noise. Mark Batterson writes, God often speaks the loudest when we're quietest. And silence is anything but passive waiting it's proactive listening. The problem is we have all these voices, all these noises flooding our ears and our hearts and our minds all week long. Think about all the voices you had flooding your heart and mind this last week. Facebook, any social media site, peers, family members, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, whatever your news outlet is. All of these voices just flooding and filling our ears. Some of us, we don't even need those outlets. Sometimes our minds are enough voices going on, right? <laughs> they just go in overdrive, and we have all these thoughts and all these things going on. We are bombarded with so much news and so much noise and so much advice from so many sources that I believe it actually drowns out what God is trying to speak to us. This world's like a music concert. You ever been to a music concert where it's really loud? And you're standing by someone who wants to tell you something that obviously is important in that moment, right? What do you typically have to do? You have to get closer. You have to put your ear almost on their mouth or their mouth almost on your ear, unless what? You leave the concert. You get away from the noise. You get away from all the distractions. Because the best way to communicate isn't while the band is playing, but to exit the noise where you can hear the one speaking without having to shout or strain. And for the disciples and the crowd to hear Jesus, guess what they had to do? They had to prepare themselves, they had to get in position. 
they had to focus on the one sitting on the top of the hill because he was the one that mattered. They had to tune their heart and their ears and their mind to his mouth as they're ready to open. For us to hear God's voice, here's the key ingredient. We have to give God our attention. We have to unplug from everything else. We have to turn off the voices that this world wants to flood our hearts with. We have to turn off the fears that this this world wants to feed us. We have to turn off the theories of the unknown and the uncontrollable and the unseen. Here's the thing. When we hear the voice of God, we hear the voice of a God who can be known. We hear the voice of the God who controls all things. And we hear the voice of the God who sees all things. And so why would we let the uncontrollable, the unseen, and the unknown flood our hearts when we can let the one who controls, knows, and sees all things flood our hearts? But we have to be ready. Our God is a relational God who wants to speak with his children but too often we drown out what he's trying to say when he's speaking. Even in this moment. Even in this moment. Anybody want to confess that your mind has wandered that something else has got to happen today? Start looking at your watch. Where were we going for lunch again? What am I cooking? You see, the battle for our attention is real. Because even in this moment, you all can look towards the preacher and the pulpit and your mind can be somewhere else. So we have to learn to just focus on him and his voice. Finally, see that Jesus taught. He taught them. And why do we need to be close to God? Why does God invite us near? Why does God want to speak to us? Because he wants to teach us something I'm learning on a daily basis is I do not have it figured out. I think we all understand that. We all struggle with relationships. We all at times have struggles in our marriages. We have struggles as parents in our parenting skills. We have struggles with our finances. Anybody here struggle with managing your time? Sometimes, right? Wow. We struggle with our abilities. We struggle with the time that we live in and how to understand it or comprehend it. But guess who knows the key to all of these things? God. And throughout God's word from Genesis to Revelation, we are told that we've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God's word teaches us and all people how to handle relationships. God's word even teaches us what sort of relationships we should be in and what relationships we should avoid. God's word teaches us how to be married. Do you know God's word even teaches you who to marry and who not to marry? God's word teaches us how to raise our children, how to discipline our children, why to discipline our children, and sometimes how to discipline our children. God's word teaches us how to handle our finances, our money, our budgeting. It teaches us how to manage our time, 
God's Word teaches us how to manage our abilities and our talents. Did you know that God's Word, even before 2020 happened, taught us how to handle infectious diseases? It's in that fascinating book of Leviticus, but it's there. God's Word teaches us how we should respond to, react to, and support or not support governments and authorities. God's Word teaches us how to understand this world in which we live in so that we can see it through His perspective. In God's Word, we are given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Before Joshua would set out into the promised land, after he fulfilled the role of leader of the Israelite people when Moses died and vacated the position, God came to Joshua and told him this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, that means all the time, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, hear that, then, when you do this, then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. But what was it contingent upon? Clinging to the Word of God, clinging to what God was teaching His people. But there's a catch. The action of Jesus, as you can see, Jesus taught. The reaction of us, we must be willing to learn. There's a catch. You know, many teachers in this last year worked, who worked in the education field, and I know I'm not supposed to bring up school at this time because we're only a couple weeks away till D-Day, um, that God can teach, but we have to be willing to learn. You know, in the year that shall not be named, schools went virtual. And as I am married to a teacher, I got to feel, see, and experience the frustration that I know not just my wife, a teacher, was having, but other teachers were having in Stratford and all around this nation. And what I saw, and Stephanie can probably attest to it, and I know we have other teachers, but what I saw was my wife would put out instruction. She would put out a video. She would instruct, and she would guide her students through the activity, through what was going to be expected of them as she taught them how to do the assignment and the project. And not only would she give a video, she would say, if you ever have questions, you can email me or... There's this little box at the top of your page that says instructions, and you can read that and follow the instructions. And the frustration she would have as she began to do this is students would want to get their work done as quick as possible because if they got it done, then they could go do whatever they thought they should be doing or wanted to do. And so she would have students that would put in partial work or students who would give answers that had nothing to do with the question or the assignments, and some students even put in homework assignments that were completely blank just to be done, and then mom and daddy, who are now in the classroom, would email the teacher and say, why did sweet little Joey get an F on their assignment? Because sweet little Joey said that C comes after A in the alphabet. 
But what would happen is she would give the instructions. She would deliver the instructions. She would go over the instructions. She would make herself available to redo the instruction. And yet if they were not a willing student, willing to follow the instructions, they found themselves not succeeding in ways they could succeed, and some of them failing. God's word is meant to teach us how to live the life which God created. It is an instruction manual. But if we are not students willing to take instruction, we may scrape by, but we will never succeed in the way God intended. Like students at school in the year that shall not be named of blessed virtuality, we will come to ourselves before God and we will be surprised or disappointed in the outcome simply because we did not follow the instruction. So God can teach, but if we're an unwilling student, it's really not going to matter. The Bible says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you want to be complete? Do you want to feel equipped for whatever's going to happen the rest of this year in 2022? Do you want to be ready and prepared? That's what the Word of God is for you may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God is living and active, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And since it's living and active, it must become living and active in God's people, but it only comes from a heart and mind willing to be taught by it. And perhaps you're hearing what God is trying to teach us is the most important lesson that we can know and accept. God sees you. God knows all of you. He knows you by name. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows the things about you that you don't want anyone else to know about. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And though that may scare you, hear this, God loves you. And the proof is that of that is in Jesus Christ, whom God sent down to earth and then sent up Mount Golgotha to die on a cross for your sins, for my sins and they placed him in a tomb but he rose again to forgive all sins to ascend on high and as he sat here in Matthew chapter 5 the Bible now tells us he's seated at the right hand of God interceding for us and what God does in this moment is he invites all of us near to him which is only by faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins so you might have a relationship with God, be restored back to God, and be able to hear His voice speaking to your heart. And so if you're here this morning, if you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, then this lesson is what God wants to teach you in this moment. It's His good news. God created you for a relationship with Him. You are meant to be in a relationship with God. But your sins like my sins long ago, are what are separating you from God. And we can seem to think that if I can be good enough. I can just do a good, enough good things. You know, if I'm just not like so-and-so. But we can't 
solve our sin problem. And God knows that about you. He knew that about me. And that's why God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to die for the sins of the world and to rise again that we can find forgiveness and salvation in Christ alone. And if you're here this morning, you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. This invitation is for everyone. And God is inviting you now to hear him instructing your heart and to respond to it. Because the Bible says when we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we confess with our mouth that he is Lord and Savior, we shall be saved. So maybe you're here and you need to make a confession of Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess you're a sinner to God, accept Christ's payment for your sin, and become a child of God. So Jackson's going to come up and lead us in a time of invitation. I'm going to be standing down here, and if you're here and that's you, I, I need to accept Christ. I just want you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. We're going to pray together. We're going to celebrate together. The Bible says when one person, when one sinner comes to Christ, the heavens erupt. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're like me and you realize that I have not been reacting to Jesus the way I should be reacting. I know of his actions, but it's not causing an equal reaction. And just come and repent before the Father for that. But let's pray together as we come this time of invitation. Father, thank you for this day. We love your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you that you came to die for us. Thank you you know that we are going to stumble and fall short at times, and yet you still loved us despite that. There's nothing we have ever done that has surprised you. It may have grieved your heart, but it did not surprise you. And so we come before you repenting of our sin, declaring our need for you, and Lord, if there's anyone here this morning, and you know, you know all things, but if anyone here this morning does not know you as their Lord and Savior, they not, do not belong to you, during this moment of, of invitation and response, that they would come down and accept you as their Lord and Savior. We ask this time that your kingdom and will would be done, and you alone would be glorified. And we praise all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.